Whoever you are, wherever you may be, you are in a relationship. You may be in a relationship with yourself or with a significant other, but you are in a relationship. And every relationship needs a foundation so you can find happiness, trust, and stability. Jesus is that foundation. We are called to constantly pursue a relationship with Jesus and his trust, patience, grace, mercy, and love. But this pursuit doesn't stop for anyone. In fact, it should only become stronger in a new relationship with another. When your relationship status changes, your relationship with Jesus can't. Leave room for Jesus. Now, tomorrow, and forever. How you guys doing? Good deal. Some of you know me. Some of you don't. My name is Josh, also known as Michael, Anna, Sarah's dad. And in 39 days, officially Abby's dad. So I'm pretty excited about that. Talk about relationships. I'm getting a new daughter, and Heather's sharing her with us, so I'm pretty excited about that. Hey, uh, I will tell you, uh, some of you have bounced around the back of a pickup truck in the mountains of Guatemala with. Some of you have thrown discs with. Most of mine end up in the pond or the woods. I'll just say I was trying to aim there. Uh, And some of you I haven't met. But um, just a little bit about my resume. There's a picture up here. You're seeing something my kids have never seen in real life. That's me with hair. But I thought, you know, if we're going to talk about relationships, it doesn't matter what my degree was. It doesn't matter who I am or where I come from. All that matters is two things. One, I understand that my relationship with God is more important than anything else in the world. And I understand that the choice I made and who I chose to spend the rest of my life with as my spouse is the second most important relationship in my entire life. So, somehow... That woman who's in the back right now said yes. I always say she's a very intelligent woman, only did one dumb thing. In Grand Rapids one day, I was down on one knee and she said yes. Other than that, she's really smart. So that's my wife, Liz. And uh, for I'm 44, and for 28 years of my life, that has been the love of my life. The only reason it wasn't past 28 is because I didn't meet her until I was 16 years old. So just, just to tell you, um, I'm going to share with you today what God has taught us in the Word about having a relationship with God in the center. But I wanted to start with that so you know. um, I've been blessed with a relationship where a woman that knows I'm far from perfect has put God in the center of her life. And when I put God in the center of mine, together as a family, we've been able to see God working through each other and see God working in, in the people around us. So it's pretty cool. If you weren't here last week, Mark did an awesome job kicking us off. He talked about, in a a state of singleness, maybe you're not in a relationship, but what we should be doing to make sure God's the center of our life. And he he had some phenomenal points that I hope you took away. His comment, become the person you're looking for, is looking for. Be who you want, who you know the person looking for you needs you to be. And that's centered in Christ. That's huge. Be attentive of God's word and his work. That's huge. Be looking at what God's doing in and through other people. Be present. I got to tell you, in this world that's moving so stinking fast, I hope you listen when Mark says that because so often people are saying, oh, I wish I was over there. I wish I had that. I wish I wasn't stuck here. And God's going, hey, you're my kid. I've got you right here for a reason. You can grow in me right now. Then you'll be ready for where I'm taking you next. And the other thing is a great takeaway. See singleness as a gift. You know what? It's, it's important, and we're going to talk later. You are 100% complete as the child of God he created you to be without anyone or anything else. He created you as his child, and that's who you are, and that's okay. And so if, if you're single and you're following God, awesome. 
If you're single and maybe this idea of following God is brand new to you, that's okay too. We're glad you're here. That's how we learn. We're all growing. You might be in a very God-centered relationship and you can say, hey, I know this stuff. I'm applying it. We're not perfect, but things are going pretty well. That's awesome. Or you may be in a relationship right now and as we talk through this series, you may be kind of impacted with God's word and say, you know what? Maybe the relationship I'm in is not a God-honoring relationship. Maybe this isn't where I'm supposed to be right now. But the thing is, no matter which one of those four categories you're in, God has words of encouragement and guidance for you. And I hope I can just be a funnel tonight. Don't hear me. This isn't the world and relationships according to Josh. This is what scripture says about what God's original design was for a relationship and ultimately a marriage. So where do we start? You cannot be in a relationship with someone else and know who you are as a couple if you don't know who you are. It has to start with your identity. That's why Mark launched this whole discussion with, hey, you need to have God in the center of your life. You need to know who you are. For me, I take that really seriously. I need to know who I am. And in a world where somebody says, what do you, what's the first question we ask? What's your major? What do you do for a living? Where do you live? All these things, that's not who I am. One thing everyone in this room has in common, if you look around, every single one of us was created in the image of God, and first and foremost, you're a child of God. That's where my ID starts. I don't care what you make, I don't care what your rank is, I don't care what your degree's in, I don't care if you've never gone to school a day in your life. Some of the most amazing, wisest people I've known in this world, if people looked at their resume, they'd pass them over because they'd say they don't have the education or they don't have the background, and God said, I'm in that person, I'm working through them. So who am I first? I'm a child of God. Secondly, I'm responsible as a man to God. I'm responsible and accountable to God to be the man he wants me to be. After that, I'm accountable as a husband. I'm responsible to treat my wife the way we're going to talk today a man should treat a wife and, and how you should interact in a marriage. Then I'm a dad. I will be ultimately held responsible someday for the father I was to my kids. And then as an elder, I'm blessed with the chance to be on the team, the elder team here at church. And there's elders here in this room, and I, I love these guys and gals. And then after that, everything else falls in place. You're at a time in your life where people, what are you going to do? Where are you going to be in three years? Are you going to go to grad school? Are you going to go straight to work? Are you going to stop school and go do this, do that? If you say, you know what, I'm a child of God, I'm a man or woman of God, I have my priorities in place, everything else will fall in place after that because the core of who you are is intact. Let's jump into relationships. If I know who I am as a man of God, and I know that I'm complete in God, when I was looking for a spouse, what did I look for? I wasn't looking around saying, well, what, what can she do for me? Because I, I need somebody that's, that's perfect, and I need someone who never fails, and they're never changing, and they're going to be my hope, and they're going to be, you know, my salvation in a, in a tough time, and no matter what I go through, they're always going to be that rock. My wife gives me hope. She encourages me. She loves me. She's patient with me. But is it fair to enter a relationship asking someone to fill the gaps that God's supposed to be filling in our life? It's not. I looked for a woman who had the godly traits that I said, you know what, she's living for God. He's going to be the first priority in her life, not me. Hopefully, if I'm lucky, I can be number two for her. I looked for someone I saw God working through her. I saw the traits that I knew God wanted in a godly woman and who in a marriage, if we combined our love for God and our traits and gifts and talents, I could see them working through me. The first thing you see when you look at a relationship that's centered on God is you are not looking for what can she give me. What can he give or do for me? It's look at what God is doing through them and look at what God does through us when we're together. It's a very different perspective than the world has. 
You just can't join a person in a healthy relationship if you don't start with that and know who you are. So I'm not big on titling like conversations like this when I get to present to somebody. I will tell you I love being here. I, I love being able to share what God put on my heart. But if I had to title this, it's probably not what you would expect. Talking to you tonight, I, Mark asked if I would speak. And if you don't journal, I would encourage you to journal. When you have your quiet time every day, journal. Because I opened up my journal that I journal in every single night. And I'm like, this fits, that fits. And God said, I already gave it to you, dummy. You're just the mouthpiece. Just say these things. But it's interesting because here's the title. How's this for an uplifting, feel-good title about relationships? A funeral and a Christmas tree. Pretty cool, right? Let's talk to a bunch of people who are, are looking to see who does God have for me, who's going to be the love of my life for the rest of my life. Let's start talking about a funeral. Kind of counterintuitive, but go for a ride with me here. The greatest spiritual mentor in my life other than my dad is named Dennis Carpenter. If he was here, I'd say it in front of him. I've told him many times. It's odd to say Dennis Carpenter without saying Dennis and Georgia Carpenter. He was my spiritual mentor. When I was 14 years old, he was giving me books written by 14th century monks saying, read this, compare it to the Bible, tell me if you agree with it or not, and if you don't, why? If you do, biblically, why? Here, read Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I can't even pronounce it at 14. I had to read it. He was pushing me spiritually. God wants something from you prep now. You don't know what he's going to ask you to do. But you know what I saw? When we went to the mountains in Wyoming climbing because he taught me how to be a guide, it was Dennis and Georgia. When he led the high school youth group, it was Dennis and Georgia. When he ministered in church, it was Dennis and Georgia. Their entire life was together, and it was ministry. Even just as a high school kid hanging out at their house, and then as a college guy hanging out at their house. And I did that a lot because their son was my best friend. It was always Dennis and Georgia. We lost Georgia two years ago to cancer. And I went to the funeral and I thought, man, this is going to be brutal. This woman was like a second mom to me. This woman never saw me when she didn't give me a hug. This woman was this tall and she could kick my butt with just the word, you disappointed me. She meant the world to me. And I thought, I'm going to have to go to a church and I'm going to have to see Dennis and his best friend, the love of his life, his bride, his ministry partner. She's gone. She got taken away by this thing that sucks that we hate called cancer. What is his attitude going to be? He's probably going to be sitting with his family in tears while a pastor talks, and, and I'm going to try to do the best I can to encourage him. I walked into that church, and I saw in the front of the church, I saw a beautiful casket, and Dennis is a master carpenter. He handmade her casket while she was still alive because she asked him to do that as his last gift to her. There was not a nail or screw in that casket. The wood held itself together. It was amazing. And a pastor didn't get up and speak. Dennis got up and he walked up there and he said, Georgia was the matriarch of our family. She was my best friend. She was the love of my life. She was my compassionate partner. She was the mother of my kids, the grandmother of our grandkids, an amazing great-grandmother to our great-grandkids. She was my ministry partner. Every step of my life, every state I was in, no matter where I went in the world, she was my best friend and she was there beside me. And then he said some things that just blew my mind. He said, Georgia was all these things, but Georgia wasn't mine. Georgia was God's daughter first. From the moment she was conceived, God had a plan for her life, and he knew that plan. And even to the day of her death, it didn't surprise God. This is a man who just lost the love of his life. And I was sitting there, and I was learning a lesson I had never understood at that depth before. It didn't surprise God. And then he said, I'm sad 
but I can't be upset because God called his daughter home. She was not mine. I was given the privilege to have a front row seat to see how God used her for 60 years. It's tough to talk about her. That is what having God in the center of your life and then God in the center of a marriage is. That Imagine the worst possible thing that could happen. The worst thing in my life that could happen is that God says, I'm taking one of your kids or your wife home. I can't imagine that. And in that moment to say, you know what, God? I admit I hurt. I will grieve. I will miss her. I love her. She's yours first, and I will see her again. I have to be okay with that. That's God in the center. That is the ultimate goal. How do you have that kind of love? I tease my girls all the time. I mean, life isn't Hallmark. It gets watching in my house more than the outdoor channel and football, but life isn't Hallmark, right? How do you get that? One way. The only way you get it is what Mark's talking to you about, having God in the center of your life and keeping God in the center of your relationship. Now, I will tell you there's no perfect people in this room. I'm far from perfect. If you don't believe me, ask Liz. She'll stay afterwards and be here for a couple hours explaining all the ways I'm not perfect. But she's patient, so it works. Even though there's no perfect relationships, there are good examples of what relationships were intended to be. You can't get past page three of the Bible without seeing what God originally intended. What's a relationship supposed to look like? God creates the entire universe. It's amazing. He sees that it's good. He makes Adam out of clay and he breathes into Adam. Think about that. God's breath goes into Adam. That's how he got life. It wasn't just like you're a man. He breathed. Every single creature in creation comes before Adam and he's like, yeah, that's platypus, that's whatever. They get all done and God says, hey, this isn't good that this guy's alone. There's not, there's not a good helpmate for this man. So he takes a rib out of Adam and he creates Eve. Literally custom-made Eve in his image, also in God's image, and also breathed his breath into her. You have two people created in God's image. They're children of God in the image of God, carrying the breath of God. And he says, there you go, guys. You are the first dating couple. Pretty amazing. Now, I don't know. Maybe Eve said, this is the only dude I have to choose from. But I, I like to believe that, that they just looked at each other and they knew exactly what was meant to be. I want you to picture them walking through the garden, though. We pray. I love the intimacy of worship. I love the intimacy of prayer. Adam and Eve walked through the Garden of Eden in perfect creation and talked with God. Literally, like between them, God in the center of the relationship, he was physically there. It was perfect. There was no sin. It wasn't a fallen world. That was God's intent for a relationship. So how did it go wrong? How did it go wrong when we know that the word that's used in the Old Testament to describe God's love for man is defined as to know and be completely known? What is love in a relationship? It's to know and be completely known. When it says in Genesis that Adam lay with Eve and they had a child, you know what the word that was used to describe that love of a man and woman in the most intimate context of a relationship? That word is defined as to know and be completely known. The intimacy that God designed in a proper relationship is no different with that man and woman, with God in the center of it, than God's relationship that he has with you as his created loved one. So how did it go off track? Something happened where God got taken out of the middle. And let's look at what happens when God gets taken out of the middle. For starters, everything's going well. Genesis 2, 23. This is pretty cool. Adam's freaking out. I think I would be too. I mean, guys, let's be honest. You're alone in the entire world. 
surrounded by animals, and you're like, this is pretty cool, but I'm alone. And then this woman walks up. You've never seen a woman before, and you're like, all right, God is pretty awesome. Like, good job, God. High five, you know? So he says, now this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. You think, well, it's kind of weird. Why would it say they're naked and they felt no shame? That comes into play here in a little bit. There was no shame. They were in perfect Eden with God, with a perfect relationship, and sin hadn't entered the picture. Let's look at chapter 3 of Genesis. I know this is a little long. Bear with me. It's the longest section we have. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? That's not what God said, by the way. So you lose the godly worldview. The world comes in and Satan goes, did he really say that? He's twisting the truth. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit of the tree of the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. What is the temptation here? Take God out of the middle, you can be like him. You can be God in your life. Something can replace him. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. What changed between chapter 2 and 3? Nothing. There was no shame. They were naked 10 minutes ago. Now they're sewing fig leaves. The first thing that happens in a relationship when God is taken out of the center, in the first relationship in history, shame entered when sin replaced where God was supposed to be. God did not intend shame to be part of a relationship. It didn't exist. So shame comes in. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord, and he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to man, where are you? First game of Marco Polo, by the way. Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. I'm afraid. Again, 10 minutes ago, there was no shame, and you weren't afraid of anything. What are you afraid of? There's one man and one woman in the world in the garden God created in perfection. You can't even get a sunburn at that point. There's no sickness, there's no problems, and you're afraid? I just created you. The first thing that comes into a relationship when God's taken out of the middle is shame. The second thing that comes in, this is the introduction of fear. For the first time in recorded history of the world, this is the first time fear sneaks in. Wasn't God's intent. Let's read on. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. What's the truth? They both screwed up. They both made a decision. They both sinned. But for the first time, a third problem comes into a relationship when God's taken out of the middle. We had shame. Then we have fear. Now we have blame. I'm ashamed. I'm fearful. And I'm blaming somebody else. That's what happens when Christ, or God rather, was taken out of the first love relationship ever in the Bible. So, 
We now know what happens if you take him out. So how do we make sure in a relationship we make him the center? How do we keep God in the center of a relationship? Last week, he's first in my life. He's first in her life. How do we make him first in our life? This is where the Christmas part of it comes in. We had the funeral already. So I think we have a picture of a Christmas tree up here. There we go. All right. This is our living room. I'm sorry if, if you don't like eating wild game. Just ignore everything else. But if you look up here, we have a large Christmas tree. Why do we have a large Christmas tree? Because I wanted to see how far my wife would let me go with it. No, actually, when I grew up, Thanksgiving would come and go. My mom would take everything off the walls, everything off the tables, all of it. Literally all the decorations in the house and the hallways of the basement would go away, and she would bring out the Christmas decorations. Not like gaudy, weird stuff, but really nice stuff, and the whole house was Christmas. When I was praying and thinking through how I explained to you God in the center of your relationship, he said your Christmas tree. That Christmas tree is from this year. That Christmas tree is just shy of 18 feet tall. Not the biggest, but not the smallest we've ever had. There's scratches on the ceiling where I put a 21-footer in there and realized I had to cut it. It didn't work real well. How do you get a Christmas tree in a living room? If I take that Christmas tree at 18 feet tall and bring it through the door of the living room and slap it in the living room and go, there you go, center of Christmas, that's the tree, that's the focus, everything falls apart. I can't put the furniture in that room and I can't put the crocs in the room and the table and the rocking chair and the bear mount and everything that's in that room and just say, I'm going to add a Christmas tree. All this other stuff is my priority. It's not going to move. That's my stuff. Don't, don't push in there, Christmas tree. If I just try to shove a Christmas tree in, it won't fit. It will be in the way. I can't move around. The functionality of the entire room fails. I can't entertain guests. We can't clean. It doesn't work. The only way the Christmas tree works in our house in December is if we take everything out of the living room and my wife and I say, we're getting a Christmas tree this year, it's going to be the center point of the room. Where does it go? In front of the window in the dormer. We bring it in with nothing else in place and we slide that tree in there and we say, this tree is the prominent focus of this room. Then we say, what else fits? Okay, if we put couches in, we can put them here, we can put the, and things incrementally fit in around the priority of the tree. You know what happens? Room works just fine. The room works way better than if I try to cram a giant Douglas fir into a tree where everything else is a priority. Guys, that is a relationship. If you have a relationship between a man and a woman and they have their own priorities and their own way and they're not going to do anything but just try to cram God in a little bit, that's not how it was designed to go. Just like a Christmas tree, you both have to say, look, if we're going to be together from the start, from the friendship, and then the dating, and then the engagement, and then the marriage, God is going to be the first one in the door, and we're going to decide everything else, whether it fits or not, around God. If it doesn't fit in your relationship room with God, it doesn't belong there. If you say, we can do this, and it works with God in the center, you do it. It makes it very easy. So the Christmas tree. Make sure God's that Christmas tree in your relationship and then see what else fits. Don't just try to cram God into what you envision a relationship to be. There's a couple of examples I want to give you about how we keep God in the center of our relationship. Because if God's in the middle of our relationship, we're going to model a couple of traits. First thing, we need to know who God is. And I'm going to bounce around the Old Testament and New Testament here just so you can see this is a theme throughout the whole Bible. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. 
The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. What is the core part we take out of this? If God's going to be in the middle of our relationship and God is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness and forgiving, who doesn't want a relationship like that? You screw up and your girlfriend or your fiance or your wife says, I forgive you. Or vice versa. That's powerful. All that is is taking the attributes of God because he's in the middle and applying it to how you treat each other. The next thing, jump into the New Testament in Galatians chapter 5, 22 and 23. What does a godly life look like? What does a godly individual or marriage or dating relationship look like? If it's centered on God, there will be fruit visible that you go, yep, that's what a godly relationship is. What's it going to have? The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there's no law. Again, I ask you right now, think of that perfect fairy tale romance and cut it right down to what's important. If God's in the middle and your best friend, your fiance, your wife, your husband, if every day they showed you love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, what kind of marriage would that be? What kind of impact would you have on other people? The biggest one that jumps out there is self-control. Ladies, if you're in a relationship with a guy that can't control his mouth or his anger, right now he's got a mask on showing you the best version of himself he can be. It's not going to change if he doesn't have self-control 10 years down the road just because you have a ring on your finger. Guys, if she doesn't have self-control in areas of her life, she's not just automatically going to get self-control because you both say, I do. But if you find that person that has God in the center of their life, and they say, let's put God in the middle of a life together and let's make sure we show these things. It won't be perfect, but you will go over any obstacle that's put in your way. The next thing and the last section here for what a godly focus looks like is your mindset. I will tell you right now, I have had past uniters, I've had high schoolers, I've had people in adult ministry tell me they don't like this verse. And it kind of punches you right in the throat. Uh, if you've never been punched in the throat, that is not a fun thing. Um, so there's some accountability here. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Ladies, imagine a boyfriend or a fiance or a husband that his thought life and what he puts in his mind and what he looks at and what he watches, he makes sure, hey, is this true? Is it pure? Is it noble if it's right? Because if it's not, it's crap and it's going to stay over there. Guys, imagine a woman that in her interaction with her friends and with you and in life in general, she has that, that measure, that litmus test where she says, is this pure, is it right, is it noble? If it's not, it has no place in my life. You know what happens when you take everything impure and ignoble and you throw it out of your life in a relationship? You have a level of trust with each other that is absolutely remarkable. It's worth it. How does that start with the talk last week as a single person? What are you watching? What are you looking at? Reality TV shows, if it's garbage and you know it, why are you watching that one? There's other stuff to do. If you're watching a movie and there's graphic sex and nudity in it, you go, well, it's, it's rated R, it's okay, I'm 18. Guess what? God's standard is this. If it's not pure, don't watch it. And the world has said, if you're not 17 or 18, you shouldn't be watching it because they know it's garbage. 
Kind of brings it home, doesn't it? The goal is not to be a good person. There's a lot of people in relationships that are good people, and the relationships fail because the goal is not purity in God. There's a lot of people that are good people that aren't on their way to heaven right now, and it breaks my heart because they don't understand that purity and loving God is the standard. Now, when I say this, I want to be very, very clear. We've all sinned. We've all screwed up. We're not perfect. If you've struggled somewhere and you say, God, you know what? Forgive me. Clean that slate. I want to move on, and I want to have this kind of relationship. Absolutely 100% where he says, I will meet you where you're at. I love you. The slate's wiped clean. Move forward with this as your goal. Second example of a perfect relationship is Christ. And have you ever heard of Christ being the bridegroom of the church? You ever hear that? It's kind of weird. Like, like the church is, is God's bride. Obviously been thinking about weddings a lot lately because we have one coming up. But look at what Ephesians 5, 25 through 30 says. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Let's stop right there. Why does it say that he gave himself up for her so that she could be unwrinkled and unstained and blameless? Because we're the church. And you know what we are? We're a bunch of wrinkled, screwed up, stained, unpure people. And Christ, in this example of how a husband treats a wife, said, not only will I take a hit for you, not only will I stand in front of you in something bad, I will accept that as the church, you have sinned, you have done wrong, you've gone away from what I have for you, and I've done nothing wrong, but I will take the blame for everything, I will pay the penalty because I love you so much, I will put myself before you, and now guess what? Church, bride, you're holy and blameless and wrinkle-free and pure before me. We can't skip over that part of the verse. That's huge. Now we jump into husbands. In the same way, you ought to love your wife as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed it and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of one body. I will tell you right now, I have a job. I've been a state trooper for 23 years. And I know when I signed up, and Liz knew when I signed up, there may come a time where I take a hit for somebody else and I don't come home so that they can go home to their family. I don't wish it to happen, but that's a blank check. You're right. I'm okay with that. But if you say, what about your wife? What about your daughters? What about your son? What this kind of love is saying is, if you say, would, would you be okay if your life ended with you dying for somebody else? I'm okay with that. I'm good with that. But if you say, would you be okay dying for one of your daughters? I would die and have you bring me back and then kill me again and bring me back and kill me again and bring me back because there is not a limit to how many times I would take that hit because I love the people in my life. Jesus Christ did that when we betrayed absolutely everything that he asked us to follow. Imagine that dedication in a relationship where somebody says, you wronged me, I didn't do anything. I didn't start this fight, I didn't go wrong, I didn't do anything, but you know what? Because I love you, I'll forgive you and I'll forget it and we'll move on. Three months from now, I'm not going to go, remember what you did on Tuesday, the 23rd of whatever? It's gone. That is the model that we have. When two people keep God in the center of a relationship, it is absolutely unbelievable. When your identity is centered on God and your relationship centered on God, there's a cool shift that happens. Now guys, don't, guys and gals, I say guys in a general term, I apologize. For everybody in the room, I will tell you there's going to be a lot of things we're not talking about here that factor into it. 
Everybody has different likes and dislikes and personalities and things like that. Do I think when you fall in love with somebody, you're going to be attracted to them, you're going to think they're funny and all those other things? Absolutely. That's all fine. That's the way we're designed. But in the core of the relationship, the beauty is when God is in the center, as you move through life together, you will become more and more aware of what God is doing through that person and through you as a team than what they can give you or what they can do for you. A couple takeaways for you. I hope you take away these things, and I'm kind of on a soapbox as a dad, too, so I know to most of you guys at 44, I'm an old fart, and you figure he's halfway to dead, probably, but these are things that I've experienced. These are the takeaways that I know I'm glad people told me when I was in my 20s. Hear me. You are complete as you are in God without anyone or anything else. You don't need that degree to make you whole. You don't need to be able to tell people, yeah, I've been dating him for so long or I'm dating her. God says, you are complete and you are good enough. That's a great place to start from. Understand that you're not ready or capable to be in a healthy relationship like we want you to have if you're not individually healthy with God saying, I am totally striving. I screw up, I make mistakes, but God, I'm really striving to keep you in the center of my life. When you evaluate that guy or gal, asking yourself, should this go past friendship? Should I date this person? Should I, should I look? Do they have the qualities that, that God would have a man or woman have for me to marry? Make sure your first priority is that God is their first priority. The hardest thing to do in a relationship is put that person second to God. And I'll confess it to you right now, there was a point where I was standing on top of Gannett Peak in Wyoming at 13,876 feet as a young man looking down the, gla the glacier that was down below us and evaluating where am I at with God? Because I'm a man. If I fall off this cliff, the world doesn't go out of balance. I'm just Josh Later. Where am I at? Where am I supposed to be? Is there anything I'm holding back? And God said, what if I told you no to Liz? And I'll tell you, at that time, as a young man standing on top of that mountain, I did not say, yep, I could give her up. I said, you know what, God? I would struggle with that. Help me get to the point where I would be okay with that, but I'm not. I wasn't ready to be married at that point because I wasn't ready to put her second. She's first to everything else in my life, but she had to be second to him. The biblical principle of being unequally yoked, I want to hit on it really, really quick. The question that always gets asked when we talk about these series, is it okay for me to date a non-Christian because, hey, you know what, um, he's going to come to church and then he's going to accept Christ or she's going to come to church and it's evangelism through dating. A couple of reasons not to do that. Number one, there's a biblical principle that when we're pursuing a relationship for marriage, which is what we should be doing if we're dating because we're not just playing around with people's emotions. If you look in the Old Testament in Numbers 25, Read Numbers 25 if you have that question and see how God feels about it. The long and short of it is this. God had the nation of Israel and he said, do not intermarry with people from these other countries you're coming into. It wasn't cultural. It wasn't racial. He said because they worship other gods and seduction will lead to idolatry, which will lead to death. And some of them went out and they're like, we're God's chosen people. We're Israelites. We'll be fine. I can marry this woman. And they intermarried with those women and guess what they did? They started letting things go and took God out of the middle and all of a sudden they had other idols and other things replace God. And ultimately, 23,000 people died of a, flag, a plague and it led to a war. You say, holy cow, that's kind of extreme. It is, but God was setting a precedent 
you need to only pursue people that will put me first. And here's the other, I don't want to say secular view, but here's the other rubber meets the road reason don't do that to yourself. You're going to get hurt one way or another. If you start dating someone that you know doesn't have the godly traits that God would want you to have in a man or a woman as a spouse, you're going to get further down the road and the longer you date, the harder it is to say, I know I shouldn't be here. And you're going to come to a crossroad and there's only two options. One, you have a moment of sobriety emotionally and you say, I need to step out of this relationship and you will break his or her heart and you will break your own heart. Or you will make the mistake I've seen people make and say, I've got four years into this. I don't want to throw away four years. And you'll step into a situation where you throw away the next 75 years of your life because you invested in the wrong person for four. The only way to avoid that is make sure the person has the traits you want them to have walking in. Here's the biggest thing. You don't need to settle. God has made you amazing. When you focus on him, he wants to give you the desires of your heart. I met Liz when I was 16. Love of my life. My little sister, when she was 27 years old, she told me she was frustrated because she said, if God's not going to have me be a mom and a wife, I wish he'd just take that desire out of my heart. When she was 30, she met her husband, amazing godly man. He wasn't ready to be the man she needed and she wasn't ready to be the wife he needed until that time even though there was a pause there and she thought, God, why are you making me wait? Some people happens quick, some people happens later, but if you wait for the right man or woman, I will tell you, if you keep God in the middle of a relationship and let sex wait till marriage and let the relationship be centered on God and follow God and have people that are in this room as unite staffers that love you and hold you accountable, there's a level of trust and an amazing love relationship that I have a hard time explaining to you. I hope you got something out of this tonight. I love you guys. I care about you. Even though I don't know you all, I do pray for you all the time. God is your number one relationship. And if you find that person that he designed for you to be your number two, it's a fun ride and it's worth it. So if you guys will pray with me, I'd appreciate it. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that there is not a question in life or a decision in life that we have that there is not an answer for in your word. I thank you that when it all comes down to it, we are your creation in your image, and even in our imperfection, you love us. I thank you that you designed relationships the way you did. I thank you that you designed us to build off each other. Help us to see what you're doing in the people's lives around us. Help us to honor you with our decisions. And God, for every man and woman in this room, I ask that you would bless them with their studies, with their relationships, with their dating. Lord, you know the end game. You know where they're going to be in 20 years. You know how you're going to bless them. I ask that they would see you every day moving in their lives so that they can have the joy of having you as their number one and their best friend as the number two. God, thank you for all you are in your name. Amen. Thank you for being a part of our community opening the word today. We here at Unite challenge you to grow in your relationship with God, to grow in your relationship with others, and to go out and live a Christ-centered life. To learn more about Unite, follow our social media pages or go to our website at mpcc.org. God bless. Mm-hmm.